0: All right, so we've been working our way through James, and as Dave said, uh, he asked me to speak on James 3, 1 through 12. So as I was working my way through this, trying to figure out a way to entitle this whole thing, so I came up with the tongue. is how we know our heart, the key to holy living and the index to our heart. Um, as we've been working our way through this, James outlined Three marks of one who's truly religious, he called it pure and undefiled before God in our preview of coming attractions in chapter one, verses 26 and 27, which we'll refer to uh, often working our way through this. But in that list of things, um, the second of those three marks of one who's truly religious um, is an individual action-based compassion for those who are in need, made clear last week through Dave's words in chapter 2, 1 through 26, about good works and fruit. But here in chapter 3, James focuses attention on the first one in that list of three things from um, verses uh, 26 and 27 in chapter 1, which was really the preview of coming attractions if you uh, ask me about uh, James. so. the power of our words and speech. So we've seen this power when the Father first reached down and through his spoken word created heaven and earth and life as we know it. Likewise, we should be unmarked by discipline, would be marked by disciplined control of our own tongue because it too unleashes life-altering power, as James will bring pretty clear to our mind here. He spoke, he brought new birth, hence our words can and must do the same thing. The power is obviously, he simply spoke and created light, created the world. We must understand the power we're dealing with in our own tongue. Life and death hangs in the balance of our disciplining our words and our speech. Words create, keep that in your head, words create. So next week in uh, the end, in James 3.13, he's going to talk about the third principle and he's going to talk about our good life that lets him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But in uh, James 1 through 12, chapter 3, 1 through 12 here, verse 1 in chapter 3 kind of starts in an odd vein. You're going to have to get your Bibles out into James. Um, Oh, look at that. Put yourselves in for a raise, guys. They got this this up on the screen there. All right, but in James 3.1, James starts in a rather odd vein. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach will be judged in greater strictness. This always sets off the idiot light on the dashboard in my head. You know, the light that says, do you have manure for brains? You know, why are you doing this? We have to deal with the fact that he disciplines those who he loves and all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted and... Now, greater discipline. But Christians, as Christians, we need to understand the principle of greater strictness. Every decision made for Christ will result in a test. Lukewarm won't be tolerated by the king. He'll bring that up in these words also. But James highlights a dark side of the power of our words. The tongue can be powerful for good, but is easily misused and abused by Satan if left unchecked. The gift of teaching requires speaking, and obviously those affected can be exponential. The scriptures come down hard on the importance of teachers getting it right. So Jesus and James, their concern is for the sheep, for the church, the primary motivation for the scrutiny of our words. But every person, not just teachers, have that same responsibility in the words that we choose. So from cover to cover, the Bible never ceases in putting the power of our words in our face. Isaiah explained, I am a man of unclean lips, when he was trying to get his his words to the Lord. On the flip side, Peter provides a recipe for receiving God's blessing, 1 Peter 3.10. There is God-ordained power in controlling our words and studying his. No sin is more pervasively exposed and condemned than sins of speech. That's a key principle that goes right over the head of most of us in the church. Our speech is the primary reason by which we separate ourselves from God or gain access to his blessing. In 3.1 through 12, James pulls no punches or mixes no words to expound on this point. When I read James, I always think of this captain turning on the fashion seatbelt sign. That's kind of where we are here. So in James 3, 1 through 12, um, didn't fall on the ground yet, I don't think. Yeah, it did. Let me see if I can get James 3, 1 through 12 here. I'll read that to you. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. For all make many mistakes, and if anyone makes no mistakes in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body also. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they may obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is an unrighteous world among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the cycle of nature and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no human being can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord, with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brethren, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh water and brackish? Can a fig tree, my brethren, yield olives or grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. So referencing those words, three two explains that it would make a perfect person to keep free of sins of speech. James also used the word perfect back in chapter 1, verse 4 in reference to steadfastness, endurance, and perseverance in trials. Those two things are related, our words and trials. It refers to completeness and maturity. Control of the tongue and remaining steadfast in trials and tribulations are critical success factors in the sanctification process, our walk with God, living a holy life, as James describes it in 127, living pure and undefiled before God. They're key to controlling our growth to maturity. Battling with our tongue internally, and temptations and trials externally are the most persistent foes we're going to face. Each fight tests the physical, intellectual, and spiritual. So the two are connected in that they require enduring resolve to sustain the progress. The tongue and trials, enduring resolve. Those two beasts also force us to daily repentance, to daily confess our many mistakes. Thank the Lord Pete bring this up every Sunday. God bless you, brother. That is a crucial, repentance. The first words of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he baptizes Jesus, and the spirit comes down on Jesus, what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he walks out of the Jordan? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same words. Along with faith and good works, repentance is required. I'm convinced of that. James 1.26 inferred that our words also reveal our heart, if you look at those verses in 1.26 and 27. We deceive our own heart with our words. They're the index to our heart. While James 3.2 also teaches that control of what you say enables controlling the whole body. True to form, James takes his next step and tells us, and then he shows us in word pictures. Words create, a horse is an animal of intimidating power and if untamed, menacing, yet a comparatively little thing, a bit in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, controls, directs, and transforms this amazing animal into a force on a mission to accomplish good. The point is much the same with the ship. The rudder is very small comparatively, yet what does it say there? Those two little things, bits in the mouth and rudders, amplify the desires of the pilot, or the words it says, providing control and direction. The difference is that with the, horse and the, with the horse, the forces were internal, controlling that animal, taming the will and the spirit of a living beast, while the ship is driven by external forces, strong winds and storms that could drive it onto the rocks. These illustrations are specific by design. Our words, like rudder and bit, enable control over both external and internal battles. So why does John James say the tongue has a little member that boasts of great things? The boasts of the bit and the rudder are not idle or hollow. They truly master the violence of those beasts. Likewise, the tongue can make enormous claims and substantiate them, capable of controlling the physical, the intellectual, and the spiritual. Like Paul in Romans asks, who will save me from this body of death about the sin that he had so much trouble fighting against? We must constantly ask ourselves the same questions. How do we control those wild forces in us that pull us into sin? And James replies with a solution that seemingly has no connection. Do we work to control our words? Two pivotal points are that the bit and the rudder are directed by the will of the pilot, says in verse 4. And our words and our heart are interdependent. 126, our will, our heart is made known by our words. Our words both shape and influence our will and our heart. Their partnership, our words and our heart, determines progress in consistent Christian living. James would tell us there's a rudder, our tongue, a means for moving forward against internal and external trials. As surprised as James' answer makes us, we must be certain to feel this ball cleanly. It's not that a person who is strong enough to control the tongue is therefore also strong enough for every other battle. It's deeper and more important than that. Our will, our heart drives our words, and our words influence our heart. Our heart and words must work as our spirit and the Holy Spirit, like Paul says in Romans 8:16, when he cries, Abba, Father, our spirit, spirit working in conjunction with the Spirit of God, our heart and our words working in conjunction in the trials and tribulations of our lives. You think of the breaker box in your house. Every breaker controls some aspect of the lights and the power in the house. In this sense, he who controls the tongue, he says, is able to bridle the whole body also, in verse 2. The great boast, that's the great boast that the tongue can make. But think it through and you quickly realize the tongue is much more than what we say out loud. We formulate thoughts in words, we plan, we imagine, we talk things through in our minds. James says the interactive partnership of our words and our will or our heart control the physical, intellectual, and spiritual aspects of our individual lives, as well as provide a means to move forward against those internal and external trials that bombard us daily. Imagine if everything was in a breaker box, like James is trying to tell us that it is, and we just shut off the breaker box to some temptation. Imagine being able to do that. Sign me up, please. So this is the maturing process James describes. He describes it in chapter 1, 2, and 3. And now we're here in chapter 3, 2 through 5, working towards when steadfastness in trials has its full effect that you may be perfect, in chapter 1. And one who makes no mistakes in what he says, he is a perfect man, here in chapter 3. Both referring to being perfect, the control of the tongue It's not like faith, repentance, good works, or endurance, all of the things that I believe are required for salvation. Our words and our will are the outworkings or the evidence of the sanctification process towards spiritual maturity. Always working towards that you may be perfect. So in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which we just read, James turns to the enormous power of our words and will for harm. The bit and the rudder are waiting to be used to accomplish good. They're passive. Satan is not passive, like us. Fire, it describes there in the middle of chapter 3, fire is a force in and of itself. Once the small spark is fanned into flame, it becomes self-feeding, all-consuming, exponential in growth. The tongue is an active power for evil, and Satan actively leverages this unrighteous world, world. It's what the scriptures say and call it. An enemy stronghold, stronghold in God's kingdom is our tongue. In chapter 3, verse 6, James next moves to describe the tongue's influence, the dark side of the mastery described in 3.3. Three. It stains the whole body, he says, the whole person, all the members, the physical, the body, the intellectual, the mind, the spiritual, the spirit. Our words often make us offensive to the father, which is much more important than holding us back in our maturity. James uses the word stain here in chapter three, verse six, But he also used it back in the previews of Cummings' Attraction, back in chapter 127, the word stain. In 127, the reference is to remaining unstained by the world, while here in chapter 3, verse 6, he says the tongue stains the whole body. So how does the world stain us? Well, Jody Van Horn's little quick and dirty way to get that answer is to memorize 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So what are the things the way the world stains us? The lust of the flesh, pleasure. The lust of the eyes, possessions. The boastful pride of life, prestige. They are Satan's three starting pitchers, and they throw smoke. Pleasure, possessions, and prestige will get your eye off the ball in no time, stained by the world. In 3 6, says, our words cause us to stain ourselves. We stain ourselves. The tongue stains our body, our person, and then becomes self-sustaining, setting on fire the cycle of nature, the scripture says, meaning the whole of the human life, of our human life. John Calvin writes, Other vices are corrected by age or by the process of time. We mature and they drop off. But from the earliest to the last days, our nemesis the tongue banefully remains. Set on fire by hell, tells us of the sort. Satan himself leverages our inability to master our tongue. So we see that endurance is enormously important to God and therefore to Satan. But Satan leverages this crucial importance of endurance. It has a dark side. Once an evil, the sin is allowed to start. It feeds on itself and hangs on. I'm sure every one of us has had that battle going on. How do we get the bulldog off our leg? Our tongue, our words do the same thing. They stay with those who hear them. James finishes the discussion in the middle of chapter 3, highlighting the origin of this insidious fire. It's set on fire by hell. It's the drum that Satan plays best. It's the dark side of the royal law. Satan loves the tongue. It's the source of deceit and lies. As an example, James just taught us last week through Dave That man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The only verse I know that has faith and alone in the same sentence, James 2.24. Satan would love us to think that salvation is by faith alone, because he knows the truth. Faith without works is dead. It doesn't work, it won't save you. The The context of works requires a study. The boss, Dave, gave us an assignment last week to look up that stuff. I'm going to tag team with Dave. Go to Romans 2 and Romans 3. In Romans 2, Paul says that through your good works, you will get to eternal life. And in the next chapter, he says, man won't be justified by works of the law. What's up? Paul contradicting himself? My dad always said, if you think scripture contradicts scripture, God is handing you a pick and a shovel and dig it out. So my assignment to you, the first one, go read Romans 2 and 3 and tell me the difference between good works and works of the law. They get you two different places. My dad always said, you can never go to heaven through works of the law. And you can never go to heaven without good works. What's the difference? That's your assignment. In 3, 7 to 8, moving along here, we find that the tongue is not controllable by human beings, if you read verses 7 and 8. So what's the point of continuing this fight? Even though the war is not winnable, and this is critical, even though the war is not winnable on our own, That must never cause us to conclude not to fight. The fight needs to be fought. There are battles that need to be won, even though the war is not winnable. Same thing with terrorism. You can't win the battle against terrorism. There are folks in the Middle East teaching little kids to become suicide bombers. But you don't walk away from that fight. You just resolve yourselves that this fight is going to go on for a very, very, very long time. Key reason endurance and steadfastness and persistence, in Jody Van Horn's opinion, is part of salvation. We must have the resolve to fight the battle against evil, against Satan turning us from God, all through the 80 or 90 years. James told us steadfastness is required to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus' words make the same point in multiple ways. In the Gospels of Luke, all the bad stuff about, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. And three verses later, he says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Luke 21, 12 through 19. Matthew heard the same thing, and his last words there, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 10 through 13. But the one that sticks in my mind, Luke 2228 28 through 30, Jesus' words talking to his 12 men, the disciples. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And it starts out with, You are those who have continued with me. I am convinced endurance is part of the salvation question. Convinced. But it doesn't matter what Jody Van Horn tells you. I say it's faith, repentance, fruit, and endurance. Whoever tells you what's required for salvation, they better be in the thief of the cross, on the cross. So I give you a second assignment. See if you can find faith, repentance, fruit, and endurance in the section on the thief of the cross. I think they're there. So the word, moving on here in James chapter 3, the word restless in 3.8 gives us some clue as to where James is going with this. Restless translates into always liable to break out, meaning the training and breaking of the beast never completed. So this horse can suddenly rear back, become unchained, turn wild and savage. Anybody ever had their mouth get out of control, a lightning bolt come out of your mouth? No, never, never. but this still leaves us facing our inability to win this fight. So in verses 7 and 8, James makes it clear by his words. In verse 7, he refers to humankind. And his reference to a human being in verse 8. That there is no power in human nature or possessed by a mere human being that can sustain its control over the tongue. This is a key reason repentance is required for salvation, because we always make mistakes you bring that to the lord in my opinion you bring that to the lord every day repentance is something that should be on our checklist every day check that box every day so what do we do now what do we know about pentecost from acts 2 2 through 4 a different fire appeared one that came down from heaven to kindle new powers and give new speech to the human tongue. The first outworking of sin appeared in the abusive speech in Genesis, Satan lying lying to Eve converts her heart, and it proliferates. She takes the fruit to Adam, same process. The first act in the new creation was the renewal of the power of speech. The flames of tongue dancing on their heads. A renewal of the power of speech. A new spirit. A tongue declaring the way of the Lord. What if our tongues were like his? In John 7:46. No man ever spoke like this man. So finishing up here in chapter 3, our words are also a source of inconsistency. If you go to verses uh, 8 through 11. Talks about double-mindedness, but we heard that before, also. Chapter one, verse eight, use the same word, double-mindedness, which provide the soil for hypocrisy and instability. He drilled those things into us in chapter one, six through eight, and two chapter chapter two, verse four. Jesus described this assessment, this his assessment of that lukewarmness or double-mindedness. One of my favorite verses about that, Revelation 3, 15 through 20. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I would prefer that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm doesn't cut it. There's no such thing as treading water in the kingdom of God. You are either moving forward or falling back. He makes this point that we bless and curse from the same mouth and we bless and curse the same thing, the image of God, the people in the church. We bless him and curse those made in his image, the people who we should be treating as brothers and sisters. But this is something that we can do. It's very precise and limited. The way we speak to the brothers and sisters, to those in the church. Start there. Start there. He says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, that double-mindedness, that insincerity, this ought not be so, he says, translated intrinsically, this isn't right words are just like a little leaven, seemingly unimportant, but the amount changes things forever. The tongue, it always leaves its mark. And the tongue then also must be guarded or it will leave a bitter taste, like salt water versus fresh water, or like an olive versus a fig, in those last verses in James. So as said, we stain ourselves with our words. And then the last two verses in James 3 here, my message in 11 and verses 11 and 12. The message between verses 11 and 12 is a little different. The spring's illustration is about polluting a true source. While the figs and the grapes teach us that it's the heart, it's the species that changes things. Two different things in in 11 and 12. So he makes the point, a tongue left unattended will tarnish and pollute all that it touches, and will also tell you about the purity of the heart of an individual. I Send you away with a quick prayer here. Father, we do love you. We stand amazed that your word is in our hands. We just pray, Father, that these words today and that our words in the future would make your name hallowed, Lord, will continue to allow us to call attention to a God of the universe who loves us and gave his son up for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.